spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Sometimes the temptation is too great. It is episode 279 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. And before I get into what we're going to be talking about, this week, an epic computer failure here at the Down and Nerdy Podcast Studios. So, trying to work through that as best I can, and that wasn't going to stop me from talking about Carnival Row once again this week. But this time, we'll take you inside the press conference from San Diego Comic-Con this year. So, you'll hear from Orlando Bloom and Mark Guggenheim and a whole bunch of the cast and producers of the show really take you inside what you can expect from the characters and from Carnival Row itself before its big premiere on Amazon Prime Video on August the 30th. Got some great comics to talk about this week. Yeah, you know the whole Spider-Man, Sony, Marvel thing. Yeah, I'm, we're definitely going to be getting getting into that, but it's comics first. You know that. What we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is copywriter Ollie Masters, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Flip the top off of that long box. How about firing up the tablet or the laptop? Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And anytime there's like a gangster or mob type story, I'm all in. But this one takes it to another level. It's Tommy Gun Wizards number one from Dark Horse Comics, which is written by Christian Ward, Sammy Kavila on the art there. Christian Ward also helping out on the colors with D. Cundiff. Hassan Otsmani Olahu on the letters there, and Christian Ward also doing the cover. Now, this is actually set in Prohibition-era Chicago, 1931, but here's the twist, and maybe this is a minor spoiler, so just skip ahead just a smidge. The twist is that it's magic instead of booze that's being hunted down, and I say hunted down because what's interesting here is is that there are actual historical figures from the era as a part of this story on both sides of the coin too, by the way. So you, in the law enforcement side and the organized crime side, you have actual historical figures that are a part of this thing. And just seeing how things might play out differently and how magic is distributed in the story is really, really interesting actually. And, and the actual history and this fictional history aren't, too far off. I mean, it's still pretty darn fictional, given the way that the story is told and how you know the battle for this is actually waged. But I, there are definitely some similarities there, especially once you see the names that are involved, which I won't spoil for you here. It also helped a lot that the, you got to get descriptions of all the characters right near the beginning of the book, especially the detectives that were that were involved. You get you know some of them were a little bit. You know, snarky and funny, which I thought was cool. One of them is very interesting, especially for the time period that this is based in again. So it'll be interesting to see how that character's story plays out. Once you read the book, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about, why it's important in 1930s era America. Speaking of the beginning of the story, the art was a little rocky in the beginning. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest, but I got to tell you, it really picked up 
after after the first few pages and really some stellar stuff there's that there's actually a couple of really standout highlight pieces of art in this book and one has to do with a certain ambush and you'll know that again when you see it i just think that this is a really cool twist if you're going to do something like this give me a twist give me something different to think about something different to consider in a part of history that i already enjoy Anyway, so this is going to be a pull for me, I think. I, I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of, of this run, and I think that the, the creative team is only going to get better as this issue goes on. So, you know, you see a lot of comics will start out strong with the first issue and tend to fizzle out towards the middle. I actually think this will do exactly the opposite. I don't, and not that, the, and I actually really like the first issue, but I think the second issue is going to be even that much better. How about some Marvel comics and Ghost Spider? Number one this week, so Gwen Stacy taking on her own title with Shauna McGuire doing the writing, Takeshi Mayawaza on the art. I know I butchered that name, so I apologize in advance. Ian Herring on the colors, VCs Clayton Cowles on the letters, and Lauren Molina on the cover art. Now, with her secret identity pretty much blown, if you've been reading any of the Ghost Spider stuff that, that's been coming out recently, Gwen's kind of looking for a fresh start. And really a place to just get away and do her own thing. Now, that place just happens to be Earth-616. But that doesn't mean she's going to be abandoning her dimension altogether. So this is kind of like the Ultimate Study Abroad program is the way this book really starts out. She's kind of looking to balance school in one dimension with a life also and crime fighting in another dimension too. So she's going to be kind of bouncing back and forth. But as you'll see when you read this book, there are some challenges presented with that and there's somebody that's going to be helping her out with those problems and those problems might actually increase because of something that we see at the end of the book that it's one of those things that seems innocent at the time and nothing's ever is always always as innocent as it seems in comics is it so it also looks like she'll have a little bit of help from a very familiar face that shouldn't be a surprise at all but there's also an interesting dynamic to their relationship again that i won't spoil here it's also very interesting what the adversary is going to be and how that's gonna play out i think there's a larger story there that we don't really get to because there's a lot of stage setting here but if you already love gwen stacy and if you already love ghost spider you're probably gonna love this book but it was a little bit this first issue was a bit pedestrian because there's a lot of stage setting not much else. Yeah, there is some action there. And I'm not saying that there has to be a ton of action in a book to make it interesting. But there was just a lot of, okay, here's how her she's setting up her life. And we won't know what challenges that really presents until the next issue sort of thing. So it was almost like a, a zero issue kind of flavor as to, you know, really setting the tone of what's going to be going on. And then I think we'll really get in the meat of things in issue two so i mean the art was good though and again there were times where there aren't a big a lot of big opportunities for that art to shine but when those opportunities were given it really really did this is really one of those times where you might need to be patient through this first issue in order to get to the better stuff that's going to be coming in future issues and the larger story and there's only one issue in but i'm going to go ahead and give this a pickup only because i'm not 100 percent sure how the pacing's going to be and if things are going to pick up in the next issue. But I'm definitely going to be getting at least the next couple of issues to see how this thing goes with Ghost Spider number one. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, checking out some Geek Tainment. So what are we talking about? 
Let's make it a surprise next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aaron Pierre from Krypton on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So if I'm being honest, I was sitting around this week putting the show together, and I'm thinking, what do I talk about for this week in Geek Tame? And things are kind of slow right now. There's not a lot of new shows that are popping up, not a lot of big, big things to talk about as far as reviews and whatnot. So, you know, one of the big stories of this past week that, that may have been lost in the shuffle by now since it happened about a week ago, and it was that Sci-Fi canceled Krypton after two seasons, and it seemed like quite a bit of a surprise. And, and of course, you know, I was, I was a little upset. I'm not going to lie, well, more than a little upset. I, I, I was fired up. When I, when I heard about this, so of course I went on the on our Twitter page at Down and Nerdy seven five seven, and I posted Sci-Fi cancels Krypton after two seasons. Oh hell no! We must hashtag save Krypton at all costs, and I meant it. I remember doing that. The last time I did that was when Lucifer got canceled by Fox, and and again that seemed like. It was a bit of a surprise, and you know how that turned out. The, the fan response was overwhelming, and Netflix went ahead and picked it up. But the, things seem a little bit more dire for, for Krypton. And not only that, but the Lobo series that was supposed to be a spinoff of Krypton, just it, apparently that's not happening either. And uh, word is that that's being shopped around, and, and that might still happen on another network. But I got to tell you, First, it just seems really odd, and 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 again, I'm not going to go ahead and I'm not going to talk about every report that's out there because I mean some of this stuff's old news. But there there was talk that that sci-fi couldn't justify the cost based on what the viewers were for the show. Now I understand, you know, if somebody's if if fans aren't watching the show and it's not beneficial for the network to keep running it, that's kind of one of the reasons you cancel a show, right? And financial reasons certainly coming there as well. And I, I know that Krypton was a bit of an expensive show, but I don't think we're breaking the bank on Krypton here either. I mean, uh, some of the stuff that we've seen sci-fi do, I mean, the, the magician certainly I'm sure carries a, a decent price tag, but again, I don't want to start comparing shows either. It's, it's easy to look at this and say, well, how can sci-fi do this and not do this and not keep Krypton or not keep this, and not do that. It's easy to say something like that, but what I don't understand here is is that I, a couple of things. First of all, I don't really feel like Krypton was given a lot of a chance. It seemed like we didn't know when Krypton was going to premiere until right before it was about to premiere, and maybe that's a tactic. I don't know, and, you know, because maybe if you figure, well, you know, you put the release date out too soon, people are going to forget, and what does it matter? The hype surrounding Krypton season two going in didn't seem like there was a lot there. As far as hype, I'm not saying from the cast or people behind the show. I'm talking about from sci-fi. It didn't seem like there was a lot of hype there. But then when you hear an announcement like, oh, well, the Lobo thing was so good. Now we want a spinoff of Lobo. So to go from, hey, this these performances were so great. Let's do a spinoff to let's just cancel the whole thing. Seems a, little, a bit abrupt to me. Like, why do that? Why give that sh- vote of confidence to a show like Lobo from Krypton and then yank the rug right up from under it. And just because people weren't watching Krypton, if you want to make that argument, that doesn't mean that nobody would watch a Lobo series. And and again, it would be different if it was one of those things where you go, okay, well, Krypton was only meant to run X amount of seasons and then it would be over. And I could, I could make my peace with that. But, you know, based on how things ended 
And now we find out that the Omega Man would have been part of it and, and all of these other things. It's like, how can you stop this story right here like this? It just, it, you find good stopping points for things and, and, and then you move on and I can accept that. And, but here's the deal. It just seems like this is what sci-fi does to certain shows, right? And, and and you've got these these movies that they make where you could say, how are they making these movies and not making something like Krypton? You're like zombie tidal wave. How do you do like zombie tidal wave, but you won't do Krypton? But yet that, that show was trending, but it seemed like Krypton trended quite a bit. So there, it seems like there's no right rhyme or reason to keep or not keep a show on sci-fi anymore. And, it, and it's And it's a little bit baffling to me because you look at some of the numbers for other shows and you and you go well why not krypton and maybe the cost really was too much but this is also an opportunity for dc universe to right a wrong here and this is a pretty big wrong you know when dc universe canceled swamp thing before really before the second episode even aired right they said well you know swamp thing's going to be canceled and you know the, the reasons for that i i won't get into that at this point, and that's been, I've talked about that already. This is DC Universe's opportunity because this is a Warner Brothers show. Warner Brothers, DC, you want to keep it in the family, here's how you can do it. You save Krypton. Do whatever you have to do to the budget to save Krypton and still give us a show that we would want to see and be proud of. Look what they're doing on DC Universe already with Doom Patrol and Titans. We're not exactly talking about small budgets here. You've already got season one of Krypton anyway on DC Universe. As a matter of fact, if you want to think about it, this is what Amazon did with Expanse. When Sci-Fi decided the same thing with The Expanse, you know what? Not enough people are watching it. It's an expensive show. We're done with it. We're going to go ahead and cancel it. And then Amazon said, okay, thank you. We'll take that. And now Amazon is going to be putting out new episodes of the expanse coming up this is dc universe's chance to do that exact same thing and say you know what season one already on dc universe i'm sure season two will be at some point you just go ahead and say either do one of two things say you're going to save krypton and do the show or you say all right we'll give you a final x amount of episodes then krypton will be over you could even pick up the lobo series and just move on with that if you want to, DC Universe and DC and Warner Brothers have the opportunity to self-contain their product like Disney does. Like Disney loves to hang on to their stuff and be in control of their own destiny. That's one of the reasons the whole Netflix thing just was, was never going to work out long term. It worked out for as long as it needed to, and then we moved on. DC Universe and Warner Brothers have a chance to grab control of their own product, make it exactly what they want it to be, control their own budget, control everything in-house, and we will get exactly what we need out of this, I think, if we get it in control of DC Universe. Now, has everything on DC Universe been fantastic? No, there's been some ups and downs there. Absolutely, but we've got season two of Titans coming up that looks like it's going to be pretty good. You know how good Doom Patrol was. DC Universe has proven they could put a good product out there. And from what I saw from the Harley, Harley Quinn animated series, they're not afraid to push the envelope either. And for a Lobo series, you push the envelope. So 
even if they don't save Krypton, which would still make me furious, but even if you decided to just go ahead and go with the Lobo series, DC Universe is a perfect home for that. Why would you look around when it's like, you know, someone who says, oh, I can never find the right man or I can never find the right woman when the right person's literally right there. It's someone that they already know. It's obvious to all the other Groups of friends, you know, everybody in your circle of friends and acquaintances all know that this would work, except for the people that are at, that that should actually be be dating. They they don't understand it, but you but you see it right there that this is a perfect marriage. Krypton going to DC Universe, or even the Lobo series, or both going to DC Universe, just makes too much sense not to do. And I don't want to make this high criticism of sci-fi either, but it just seems like. It's a little bit shaky, and the things that are getting more attention from sci-fi are not necessarily things that are of the highest script quality, if I'm going to put this in the best possible terms that I could do. But, I mean, you got to go with what people are going to watch, what people are going to talk about, and what's going to sell, ultimately. I understand that, but it seemed like sci-fi was going for a certain, you know, they were taking that taking that turn, and then you, you cancel Krypton, you get rid of Deadly Class, Expanse is gone, and I don't know what the future of the Magicians is going to be, but I, I I was not a huge fan of the last season. I know they've got Winona Earp, but you never know how that's going to work out with the financial stuff that's going on at IDW, and I don't know. I'm just, I'm afraid for the future of sci-fi, and hopefully we can still save Krypton. I am not going to get off of that. So I wanted to go ahead and take this week in Geektainment to talk about the Save Krypton movement, hashtag Save Krypton, and at the DC Universe, too, while you're at it. Let them know that you want this show saved. And one more thing before I move on to some some more nerd news here. When I posted this on Twitter, I mean, it's okay to not like the show, okay? If you didn't like it, I can accept that. I thought it was a good show, but I'm okay if you didn't like it. But to say something like, that show looked whack... If you didn't watch it, you're not allowed to comment on it. I'm sorry. You are not allowed to comment on whether or not a show should be saved or not if you haven't seen it. I'm sorry. Pet peeve of mine. Like, any, like same thing with Gotham. Gotham said, well, people say, well, it looked dumb, so I didn't watch it. Didn't watch it? Can't have an opinion. You have to watch the show before you can tell me you thought it sucked or not. I'm sorry. You actually have to physically watch at least a whole episode of the show before you can go ahead and tell me something's whack. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. I don't comment on stuff saying that I don't like it if I haven't seen it, just because I don't feel like that's a genuine way to go. If I haven't seen it and I thought it looked dumb, I'm not going to go ahead and, and say that it should be saved or shouldn't be saved. I'm just going to say, not for me, decided not to watch it. That doesn't mean other people shouldn't. So if you, did, if you don't see something, stop it. If you haven't seen it, stop dragging it down if you haven't seen something, because you never know what you might be missing. That's going to do it for my huge Save Krypton rant in this week of D in Geek Tam. And up next, let's take care of some other nerd news, shall we? On the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is cartoonist Scotty Young, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. All good things must come to an end. It's a cliche, but in this case, it is true this week. It's time for nerd news. And this time I'm talking about the partnership between Sony and Marvel Studios for Spider-Man. And that has... 
come to an end. Now, I'm actually not, and this was reported by multiple sources, by the way, and, and the reason I'm saying it that way is that I'm not really going to get into much of what's been reported because there seems to be some contention over the accuracy either on Sony's part or Disney and Marvel's part or, you know, others involved. And, you know, did Marvel Studios want more control that Sony wasn't willing to give up? Does Sony just feel like they can take it from here? Are the negotiations ongoing? Are they not ongoing? Who's in? Who's out? Sort of thing. Not going to talk about really a whole lot of that stuff. The rest is really, for me, a matter of opinion. And I think that's the best angle that I could take here because this story is probably going to change a thousand times as this show goes, as you're listening to the show throughout the week anyway. So th there could be things that I report on this that, that are going to be old news here in a couple days when, when more news on this comes out. We still have D23 to deal with too, by the way, this weekend. So we could get, could get some more news there. And this podcast comes out before that. So enough of my rambling though. Let's really get into this here. Okay. There's a lot of fan outrage. There's a lot of petitions. Fans seem to be getting forgetting something really important. And I feel like this needs to be pointed out because I don't I haven't seen it pointed out enough on social media yet. Not that that's the be all end all, but did did fans just seem to all of a sudden forget about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse? Did we just completely drop that off the face of the earth? That was made by Sony. By the way, like, can we can we remember that? Okay, you're going to come at me with, well, it's animated. Oh, it's different. Oh, it was Miles Morales. You know what? Peter Parker was just as much a part of that story as Miles Morales was. This was a Miles Morales story in a Miles Morales movie. But there was a lot of other Spider-Man in there. You had Gwen Stacy was a factor in the movie as well. And that doesn't mean that Sony can't do the same thing with a live-action Spider-Man movie. Maybe they just want to be able to do something like that. Who knows what they want to do or what they're going to do? And here's another factor, by the way. It's going to be a little bit of time before we even get another Spider-Man movie anyway. So we have no idea what's going to happen. There's no guarantee of a reboot. There's no guarantee that Tom Holland's going to go anywhere, as far as I know. You know, without getting into the logistics here, he's still signed on for Spider-Man movies. They, that wasn't necessarily something that was exclusive to the MCU. And the other argument I'm seeing is, well, how are they going to write him out of the MCU? Do they have to at this point? I know that there's a connection between Happy Hogan and Aunt May. Is that set in stone? Can they not easily take care of that? Can they not easily take care of what happened with Nick Fury in this movie? They could, These are all things that are easily pushed to the side or sort of hinted at. This is not necessarily something that needs to be dwelled on just because if you loved far from home, that's awesome. I'm glad that you loved it. I thought it was pretty darn good. I enjoyed it. Did I love it? No, I didn't love it, but I thought it was pretty darn good at the same time, but that's not something that they can't come back from and not move on with that story still intact. This story could still be told and it can be still be told well. And if, if you want to go ahead and say that Sony can't do this, because of the whole Andrew Garfield fiasco and how those movies went, then you're forgetting the Tobey Maguire movies as well. All of which were not stellar, but there were good Spider-Man movies being made there as well. And just because Kevin Feige is not going to be involved in this doesn't mean, again, that that's the be-all, end-all of this being a good movie. Remember, Venom was pretty darn good, too. As a matter of fact, I think that a lot of fans were surprised by Venom. 
and how that could be. I have no idea how Morbius is going to be. I'm not even sure I care because that doesn't necessarily, just because it's spinoff, tie back to whether or not Sony can make a good Spider-Man movie. And here's another thing that fans need to really understand, and this is super important. Disney can't own everything. Guess what, Disney? You are not going to just be allowed to own and take control of everything. You do some stuff really well. You do some stuff pretty good. And then you do some stuff not as good as you think you do. And that is just a cold, hard fact that just because Disney has their hands on something, and Marvel Studios too, by the way, doesn't mean that gold is going to come out of it. Just because Marvel is not controlling Spider-Man does not mean a good Spider-Man movie cannot be made. And Sony also purchased Insomniac Games, which made that Spider-Man game that everyone also seemed to love too. So let's give Sony a little bit of credit here for standing their ground, sticking to their guns for a property that they own, by the way. This was my, Marvel could have kept control of Spider-Man. They had to sell the rights to Sony. They sold the rights. It's done. They played nice for a while. Maybe they'll play nice again. I do think negotiations are probably still ongoing. This is not something that is a done deal. But for now, it is a done deal. And can we think, can we keep our minds open for a split second, which is something that's really difficult to do in this day and age. Can we keep our minds open for a split second to think that maybe this might be a good thing? A little distance from the connection to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and what is clearly a moving on point for this upcoming Phase 4 Maybe this is a good thing for Spider-Man fans, for the character of Spider-Man in this ongoing story. Now, something that's a little bit more stable and self-contained is the new James Bond movie. Bond 25 finally has a title and a release date, 007.com, put out that No Time to Die is going to be the title, or at least the subtitle, of the James Bond movie. And it, that's, you know, James Bond, that, that is a very classic sounding James Bond title. It's going to be hitting theaters on April the 8th, 2020 in the U.S., a little bit earlier. I think it's April 3rd in the U.K. So, hey, U.K. fans, you might not have any information on Disney Plus for you as of me recording this podcast before D23, but at least you get James Bond early. So here's a synopsis, and I normally don't do this, but I'm actually going to read this one. Bond has left active service. Remember that moment just remember I said that when we talk about this in a second. And is enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica. His peace is short-lived when his old friend Felix Leiter from the CIA turns up asking for help. The mission to rescue a kidnapped scientist turns out to be far more treacherous than expected, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with a dangerous new technology. And I got to tell you, that description right there, that synopsis, certainly explains how Lashana Lynch will be 007 in this movie. Not that that needed explaining at all, by the way. Not that that's... It's just... I've talked about this already on a past show. I don't want to rehash this again. But that synopsis alone should tell you how all of this is possible and how everyone who was upset about that needs to calm down. Now... It does seem like a typical Bond-type story. Seems like a typical Bond-type title. So if you've loved what's been going on already anyway, this is another one of these inst instances where, you know, they found a formula that they think works, but again, now we're going to do something a little bit different. And 
I don't know that this movie is going to be like a passing of the torch type deal. And I'm not even sure it needs to be to Lashana Lynch. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, then I'm, I'm sure they'll figure something else out. I, I think that it feels like that's the plan. Like, we know Daniel Craig's moving on anyway. So this might be a good time to pass the torch and tell 007 stories, not necessarily James Bond stories. Because, I mean, I mean, Felix Leiter can get his own comic book from Dynamite. We can tell more 007 stories. And I think it's just time that we just be okay with that. It, we are reaching the point where we really need to start being okay with things. All the reboots that we're getting, and we complain about that. And then when they try to give us something new. Now, new adjacent, because you're still using 007. I get that. So, But you can't get upset when you get something new. If you're going to get upset about reboots, you can't have it both ways. So at least, at least try to give it a shot. I know it's hard. I get it. Super hard. But let's try to give it a shot. Speaking of which, I got to give Disney credit because they finally, finally are going to give Boom Studios their chance according to Deadline. If Boom finally gets their win, this is kind of an update on a story I did from last week talking about how Disney keeps dropping Boom Studios movie projects. Not this time, because Cullen Bunn's The Empty Man is going to be coming to theaters on August the 7th, 2020. So that's kind of showing some confidence in that story, too, because late summer release, that can't hurt you. I mean, we've also got, it was first announced in 2016, by the way, so it's been a while. We've got James Badge, who you might remember from Iron Man 3, said star in the movie, writer-director David Pryor, also on board. Now... You might go to downnerdypodcast.com and did a review of Empty Man number one when it came out. This Empty Man virus thing, I'm not going to spoil any of it either here either, by the way. And, and the story in general, pretty terrifying. Very creepy if done properly, too, by the way. This is one that will literally make your skin crawl when you see it. Even the book, it's it's... It's an uncomfortable read, man, in a good way, though. I'm not saying, you know, don't read it because it's 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 bad. I'm saying read it, and it's going to be super uncomfortable. You might have to put it down because you're like, this is freaking me out. Uh, I'm going to come back. You know, like on Friends when Joey puts the book in the freezer when he gets scared or sad? Yeah, it's it's exactly like that. So my guess is Disney will probably recast this. But since Badge worked on Iron Man 3 and there's already that connection there, they might be apt to keep him. Uh, the director should probably be pretty nervous, though, because, again, Disney, to you know, you either give them credit for this or not. They like to have their own people. They like to have their hands in things. They like to make the decisions. This decision was made before they were on board with it. So we'll see if everybody kind of gets to stay on board here. Now, Colin Bunn seems to have a good relationship with Marvel, though, so I'm sure that comfort level helped out a little bit and forging this relationship and making things happen. So hopefully this thing stays on the schedule and we get to see this Empty Man movie made. And hopefully this first look deal with 21st Century Fox and 20th Century Fox that Boom Studios signed finally gets to yield some results. So we lost Lumberjanes, we lost Mouse Guard, but we've got the Empty Man, and we'll see how that goes. Here's something I know it came out earlier in the week, and it's old news by now. I don't care. I'm talking about it anyway because it's super exciting. A Masters of the Universe anime series is coming to Netflix. And here's why that's a big deal. This was announced at Powercom, by the way. Kevin Smith is going to be involved in this as executive producer and showrunner. Now, Rob David from Mattel Television is also going to be involved 
as a producer on the show. It's going to be called Masters of the Universe Revelation, and it's actually going to deal with what could be the final battle between He-Man and Skeletor, that according to Kevin Smith at PowerCon. Now, if this isn't great news enough, and it really is, Powerhouse Animation is going to oversee the animation process. And you're thinking, why does that matter? Because you remember Castlevania, how beautiful that anime looked on Netflix? Yeah, it's that Powerhouse Animation Studios. That's who's going to be taking care of this. So automatically, before I even know a, a, a sentence of what the story is, I already know that the anime is going to look amazing. It's going to look fantastic. I have no doubt that Kevin Smith is going to have a is going to bring out the best in this He-Man story. He he has a great appreciation for nostalgia projects projects like this, and this is certainly a, a part of the nerd world that has needed more stories and more attention. And who knows when this live action movie is actually going to you know really start to get rolling? I know that we have. It's we've got casting news on that now, and things to be seem to be moving in the right direction. But I think we'll get this first. There's no real release date yet. Uh, there's been some rumors and rumblings of 2021, but I don't really want to confirm or deny that at this point. Uh, so I'll keep my eyes on this. We also got news of a He-Man Masters of the Universe comic that's coming. He-Man Masters of the Multiverse from DC Comics. Tim Seeley going to write that along with artists Dan Fraga and Richard Friend. And several versions of Eternia have fallen thanks to the anti-Eternia. So the remaining He-Men of the multiverse are going to band together with help from Prince Keldor, who would be Skeletor. Which is super cool, right? So that, that could be really interesting, the He-Men of the multiverse. I'm sure there's going to be way more to it than that. So anytime we can get more He-Man stories, I'm down. Let's do that. Really quickly, I wanted to talk about something really cool that Marvel's going to be doing. Captain Marvel is going to be going real bad this November, according to comic book resources who broke the story. Dark Captain Marvel is going to be coming to a book called The Last Avenger. Now, in Captain Marvel number 12, a little bit of a spoiler here, Kelly Thompson joining by Lee, joined by Lee Gabbard kind of shows fans what happens when Carol Danvers takes a bad turn. That's exactly where this is going to start. And I say bad turn. I mean, she's going head-to-head with the Avengers. And this is a quote, by the way, from C.B. Sibilski, who is the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. And the quote says is that it pushes the boundaries even further by taking Carol in a dark and deadly new direction. And might I say, bravo, to Marvel for having the guts to do this. The designs look pretty cool. I love that this risk is being taken right now at the correct time when, yes, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, is a known and hot property right now in a completely different light. So you flip that on its ear, you turn the script, and you take a risk on something that could be really, really cool and interesting instead of feeding right into the norm and going and staying in that comfort level, which would have been really easy to do, by the way. Instead of doing that, no, 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 you're going completely the opposite, taking this in a different direction and something that I think would be really, really neat. And quite frankly, I trust Kelly. I really, really do. And I know how good Lee Gabbert's art is, but Kelly Thompson, 
I trust. I trust her, man. I really, really do. I just think that that she knows his character. And to make a turn like this, I think you need somebody that's not afraid to take some chances. And I think that Kelly Thompson is exactly the right person to do that. And again, when you've got Lou Gabbard involved, you already know the art's going to be good. And you've seen the character designs already anyway as well on comic book resources. So there's a lot of good vibes here for this book, and I can't wait to see exactly how this is going to turn out. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we'll head down to Carnival Row and talk to some of the cast and the producers from the press conference right before the show releases. We'll talk about that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Martin Garrow, creator and executive producer of Blindspot, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I know that I've brought this show up a lot, and I'm going to bring it up again because I got a chance to go inside the press conference for Amazon Prime Video's Carnival Row at San Diego Comic-Con. This past year, got a chance to chat with Orlando Bloom, who plays Philo, Travis Beckham, who's the creator and writer, Tamsin Merchant, who's Imogen Spurnrose, David Gyasi, who plays Mr. Argeus, and Mark Guggenheim, executive producer. So let's get to it. The first question actually was to Orlando Bloom, and that is that the show is so socially relevant. How does that affect how you played your character? And David also jumps in on this one as well. First of all, it was um, the great gift and opportunity of stepping into this show was because it was so timely and it did feel like it spoke to a lot of the issues and with, um, with, with um, relevance to what's happening in the world today. But, and alongside that, because we're in this fantastical world, created this remarkable brainchild of Travis Beecham sitting here, we're able to examine with real humanity some of the really tragic and desperate situations that are happening in the world, but with an objective and an empathetic view, I think, because, because we're looking at fauns, we're looking at fe the fey folk, as we call them, and we can sort of, it, it, it enables us to sort of step outside of ourselves and, and look at this situation and think around it. And it was so um, beautifully handed, handled by, you know, both Travis and Mark in, in, in the writing that it was, it was a gift, I think, for all of us. Um, and of course, I think as actors, you know, we sort of feel a certain sense of responsibility. So, you know, to, to deliver on that. But that's really down to the showrunners and in the writing. And, and that, was, that was the great good fortune that we had with them. May I, may I jump in on yeah, that as well? Of course. On, on that question. Um, so I have two kids, right? And I'm um, of African origin. And they're showing signs of wanting to get into this business. So there's the African side of me that's like, well, you have the option of being a lawyer, doctor, or an engineer. Um, and then there's the other side of me that I think when you want to get into this business, the best advice that I give people is go out and talk to people and listen, because that helps you to get a perspective on life and how humans work. And so as an actor, when you get an opportunity in a script that feels like it's speaking about our world and a world that we recognize. It's just a real kind of gift, and like, like Orlando said, and an honor. So I feel that that's, that's how we approached it as well. 
So another question that was asked was, other than the social relevancy, how did you how do you describe the show and how does everything fit in? Of course, that was addressed by the producers. In writing this and in, in shooting it, uh, one of the adjectives that comes up a lot is Dickensian, and usually that's meant on a superficial kind of way, like it's Victorian. There's a lot of characters, um, but it's it's I've, I've always been a fan of Dickens, and, and one of the it got me thinking about it. What he really good at, and what I've tried to aspire to in the writing of this show, was wrestling with the issues of the time, but in a way that's very personal, very connected to character, and doesn't become a polemic, but rather um, it tells the story of the struggles that people are going through, through the specific struggles of an individual character, and, 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 and really takes that human perspective. And I think that's sort of like, that's how we've always tried to write this, is that, you know, storytelling in general, I think it's an act of empathy. And, and in, in dovetailing the social issues with the actual story of this, it's just finding what is the story. You know, what is the story of, of, of the other, you know, whoever that is, whether it's by gender or by race or by place of birth or, you know, this whole series about, I think, every potential way that you could subdivide a population and from the upper class to the lower class and how all those interact. This next question was kind of for everyone. And, you know, it being such a visually striking world, how was it stepping onto the set and witnessing Carnival Row? And did anyone have any favorite things that they saw? Can I answer that first? Because I was so <laughs> excited when I first walked down the row. Um, we have a character of a horror specs in the show. And, I mean, first of all, I, I'm blessed. I've come from, I, I, like, when I was on the set of Lord of the Rings, I was like, wow, that's, you know, it was like a mind-blowing experience. And, I, and, I, and the bar has been set so high, but I was so overjoyed to walk down Carnival Row and see the level of detail. And when, when you walked into this shot, the horror specs is sort of, this, she's this sort of, how would you describe the horror specs? Like a witchy, yeah, a witchy fairy. Yeah. Oracle. A witchy oracle, oracle fairy, and she's got these potions, and there are these creatures in these jars. They're like, you couldn't imagine that. I couldn't imagine that. And it was the thing that was so exciting about, when I first read the script, I was like, wow, I don't think I've seen this before. And I love this fantasy world, because I feel like you can explore and go places with it. But to see it physicalized and, and created, like the, the card that the, those tarot cards that were created with like snake like snake skins on the back it was just like like I geek out over stuff like that you know like I really geek out over detail and like and and the jars with like creatures that you could never imagine you know like put together and yeah, it was like a fish monkey. Thing. It was exactly. It's very strange. It was. Um, it just, but you knew that Travis had a backstory for it, probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's called a Fiji mermaid. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and one of my favorite details. It's such a small thing, but um, and I don't know that you'll see it on screen, but it speaks to the, the amount of thought that's put into the construction of a world like this. Is that when you walk down the road, part of the backstory of the road that used to be this human neighborhood, and this immigrant population has sort of moved in and repurposed it, um, and. And at the very end, there's a barber shop, and it used to be a human barber shop. And, and part of the billboard, like on the wall, is, it illustrates all these different styles of haircuts um, that, that you could get there. And whatever, um, whatever fairish or bonish immigrant had moved in had painted over like horns 
on on the hair on the haircuts, you know, and just very roughly. And I think that's so. It's such a little thing, but it but it says it, it's like in a way we're constantly doing that and thinking like, no, like not the most direct route, but what is what is the most interesting route, and what is the route that 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 feels most authentic, totally authentic. Yeah, um, I've done a lot of period dramas, um, lots of corsets and bustles and all that, but I've never done one where I'm having a full-blown tea party with a man with horns and hooves. Right here. And that to me, like it felt like this playground, like this fully formed playground that had come right out of Travis's head, like that all of us actors got to go dive right into. And this whole world that we all got to play in, um, with, with its own conventions and traditions, its own mythology, its own history, and you're kind of just coming in to this story at, at this point that we don't usually come into like a fantasy. A fantasy story at this point you usually come in as Travis was saying earlier a lot earlier in the timeline but now we're in this like post-industrial Victorian age um, with all these social conventions that are quite refined and quite kind of Byzantine and quite complex and the audience is kind of like also just plunged right into the middle of that I think that's really cool I love that word Byzantine just drop the mic on that. <laughs> three syllables I believe um, I, I would just add just just the similar to what everyone said for me is the detail because like you had that immersive experience how many of you have had that experience so we had it as well today for the first time and I don't know if you if you managed to catch this but there's like a little peephole and you look through it and then it gives you another one and it's a bit like that on the, on the carnival row set they, they put so much into these kind of I mean it's big and it's vast and it's expansive and then you could be walking down the street and you see a bit of graffiti that's mm. just amazing do you know what I mean and that, that it's those moments like I have full-on kind of hooves and leg muscles I've always wanted leg muscles <laughs> which is amazing but then also they to put the fur on individually shoot these hairs out and stick them to my legs so that it breathes and moves like a like an animal. It's the detail. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. The next question is fairly simple, but I mean it definitely had to be asked, and that is what is something you're most excited for the audience to see about your character? And first you'll hear from Tim's and Merchant and then other members of the cast as well. I'm actually really excited for people to see me being uh, difficult. Um, I think as myself, as most of my life I'm quite English, I'm quite polite generally. I loved playing Imogen because she just kind of comes out with this stuff that maybe is not okay to say. And that's such a treat. Um, so yeah, I'm excited for people to see uh, Imogen Spurnrose being kind of awkward in her own skin and not this conventional kind of period drama like Ice Queen or anything like that. I think she's so much more than one thing. And actually, I think that the female characters, the actresses and the, the, the women that we have in the show are all amazing and all really like complex characters and, and performed beautifully. And that is a massive treat for me as well, to, to be in a cast of, of wonderful actors, um, so many wonderful women, um, and I'm really excited for people to see 
very complex, like just multifaceted female characters. Now let's hear what Orlando had to say. I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve quite a lot and sometimes can be guilty of over communicating. And it was really wonderful to have a character that is guarded, um, that holds secrets, that has an immense amount of empathy for his environment, which we don't explain away, which isn't, you know, just thrown away. Um, and, and to sort of, um, yeah, to embrace that kind of, there's a sort of masculine, there's a masculinity that is really well balanced with a sort of feminine quality to it, like in a way, like of, of openness, I would say, of empathy, I guess. And it sort of, it was, it was really, it was really special to have that like shadow self explored a little bit, like the darker sides to, to the shadow self of a character and why, why is he behaving in that way? And then not explaining it away, which was, which was really fun. I love David Gyasi's answer too. Check this out. Mine's similar in a, in a way, actually. Um, so I'm quite interested in hierarchy and class and how that works and how that kind of comes to be. So in my country, if you speak a little bit about this, you're already high class. And it doesn't matter how much money you have on couch, you are of a certain class. <laughs> Whereas I think in different countries it can be celebrity, in mine, right? And it's very hard to move into that class. So again, in my country, if you speak like this and you've got millions of pounds in your account, you, you stay at a certain class, right? So my character arrives in the row, and he is a fool or a puck. And there's a level, there's a ceiling that you get to as a fool or a puck. My character arrives, buys the biggest house in the richest area, cash, over the phone in an auction. And one of my favourite scenes, I haven't seen episode one, so I don't know if it made the cut. I'm hoping I'm, hoping I'm still in it, otherwise we're always still in it. There's a scene where he's just sat at the end on his own in this house. And to answer your question about what is the most interesting thing, I think it's from there. How does someone do that? That for me is the most interesting. How does someone do that and then survive in that place and make a success of that? And you go on that journey with him. So that, that's, and I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated in exploring that as well. The final question actually yielded a much more interesting answer than I expected, and that was, what is it like putting this show out on a streaming service like Amazon Prime Video and having everybody be able to experience it once all over the world? And I love some of the answers that were given, not just by the writer and the producer, but the cast as well. I would say it's really, it's, it's, it's crazy how the industry has changed. Um, because when I first, the first TV show I pitched when I first moved out here, um, we only went to like, uh, network, like broadcast network. When we were taking Carnival Row around, we didn't even go to any TV channels. Like, it, it was, it was we, we did a tour of like the streaming places. Um, and, and I think like, exactly what you're talking about, you get that, you know, those are the platforms that have a global brand. 
that have like a, a global sort of like awareness, and it, that's really a, I think a new animal. And having a show like this, I think it you know for one it just as as in creating it, it lets you tell a more global story and a story with a more global perspective, and I think that's that's really valuable. Yeah, it's exciting to feel that people can share it together and have a kind of community that's a worldwide community of sharing like the love of a particular show and going on that journey kind of together in some ways and being able to discuss it and love it at the same time. Also, spoiler alert, it's become a lot less dangerous if everyone watches it at once. Yeah, getting to explore a character over, you know, sort of eight hours and go deep and then have it shared and talked about in that way is, is it's a, it's it's an exciting new way to tell a story and to tell a narrative. I think it's exactly the same. That's what I was going to say. I think um, you know, having done both film and TV, sometimes you are restricted in both both genres really because um, perhaps the budget's not there for the TV to really explore and the time to let characters breathe in film. So to mix the two um, is a real joy. I think that's, yeah, I think people have sort of talked like as if TV is like the, the little brother to, to film and stuff and that doesn't feel like it's part of the conversation anymore. And yeah, it feels like we're doing an eight-hour movie. I, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't, I was never, uh, there was never one point where I was on set feeling like I was, that it was so expansive and, uh, and big. I didn't, it felt like a, you know, it felt like an eight-hour movie and we were just like on a big, big movie set. There wasn't a feeling of, you know, I, I, it was my first time in the TV space, but I think that, that, that idea is just sort of gone now and, and as an actor it's just so fun to get to go deep into character like that. And this show really is that. It's so vast, it's so in-depth, and it's so visually striking that just from the trailers and footage that was released alone, I couldn't wait to see the show. And when I've gotten a chance, now I've gotten a chance to see it a little bit before it comes out, you're going to be so stunned at just how visually appealing this show is and how you just can't take your eyes off of it, not to mention some of the amazing performances by not just the cast here on the on the press conference panel but some of the other members of the cast as well absolutely unbelievable make sure you're watching carnival row labor day weekend actually starting friday august the 30th you'll probably have binge watched it already way before labor day because once you start watching this thing you're not going to want to stop and that's not just one of those cliches that you just throw out there this is the honest truth guys you are not going to want to stop watching Carnival Row. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the folks at Amazon Prime Video for letting me be a part of the press conference for Carnival Row. We've had so much coverage of Carnival Row on our website already, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can actually go to our YouTube page as well and see my videos from the Amazon Prime Video experience for Carnival Row. Got to step inside, you know, some set pieces and stuff like that. Took some video. It was, it was one of the most amazing experiences that I've had since I've been doing the Down and Nerdy podcast. I just had such a good time walking through just a small bit of Carnival Row. And also make sure you're following us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.